0: Sunday. Amen? And on Pentecost, Christians all around the world remember the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given to the church, just as Jesus promised and just as the prophets before him had promised. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, God's power and spirit would come on select individuals, prophets and kings, and oftentimes uh, the spirit would come for a specific task and then leave. But in the New Testament, we see something different, that the Holy Spirit is widely given to the church, that he indwells uh, believers, that we are the temple of God, and this happened according to the words of Jesus, just like he told his disciples it would happen after his resurrection. So the word Pentecost might seem strange to you. That's actually a Greek name for an Old Testament feast that happened, the Feast of Weeks, or sometimes called the Harvest Feast. And it was at that time when Jews had gathered from all over the Roman Empire in the city of Jerusalem, and a small group, I love this, a small group of misfit, ragtag, broken people were together praying, not knowing what to expect, and it was at that time, in the time of the gathering of the feast, that the Holy Spirit was poured out. And there was a sound like a rushing wind, and tongues of fire, and the believers were empowered to speak in other languages, And Peter began to preach, and on that day, many were added to the kingdom of God. Watershed moment for the church, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. But today, I'm going to reference Acts chapter 2, but I want us to back up a little bit into the life and ministry of Jesus, actually the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 3. You see, Jesus is first in all things related to our salvation, Um, He goes first in all things, and you may or may not have realized this, but in Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus's water baptism, but we also see him being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you might wonder, how could that happen? Isn't Jesus God and the Father God and the Spirit God? How does the Spirit fill Jesus? Well, it's a mystery, and Jesus at no point gave up his identity as the Son of God, and yet we can't deny that in the Gospels, Jesus is often referred to as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, before we go on, just a little cultural commercial. Can I make a little cultural commercial? I wanted to address this today. Um, Over the last few weeks, I have some people coming to me, and they're saying, Joel, we wish we could be more responsive in your sermons, you know? Now, it's just, you know, our church and our church's history, it's just a traditional thing that we sing and we worship, and then we get really quiet during the preaching, right? And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, if that's, you know, what you prefer, then do that. I, I don't need you, you know, to validate me by being loud during my message, okay? So so listen, I'm fine, okay? But on the other hand, some of you have been like, I wish I could say amen. Say it, all right? <laughs> you can say it, okay? So that's a little bit of a shift for us. You know, sometimes, I know, you know, it may have been different for us, but sometimes Anthony has come up here and, and played behind me sometimes. You know, in the tradition of many churches, um, you know, Anthony is doing something he's really familiar with in church. It's kind of giving the congregation cues for knowing when to interact with the preacher. Now, if that's not interesting to you at all, that's fine. All right? But if that helps free you up a little bit um, to, you know, to do what you want to do, that's fine too. Are we good? I just wanted to address that openly. Okay. And if you're completely quiet, I'll leave here feeling very discouraged. No, I'm just too... Okay. So... Um, Jesus is filled with the Spirit in Matthew chapter 3. Now, we're going to start with the ministry of John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin by birth, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he went into the wilderness where he began to preach a message of repentance to the Jewish people. And he began to baptize them. Now, baptizing was not something new in Judaism. It had been practiced as part of the Jewish faith and signified repentance. But he begins to baptize people in the Jordan River. Now, Matthew records some of the teaching of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, but I just wanted to point out to you Matthew 3.11. John the Baptist says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, jump down to verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is a proper for us to do this to fulfill our righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and He saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased, and let's jump to the next chapter, just this first verse, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. My main point this morning is that being filled with the Holy Spirit makes you secure in the Father. Can you say that with me? Being filled with the Spirit makes you secure in the Father. It might surprise some of you that John didn't teach one baptism, but two in, in Matthew 3, verse 11. First, he teaches and he's practicing water baptism. And so this is the practice of doing outwardly what has already happened inwardly in terms of repentance. Like a wedding ring is a visible sign of the covenant vows that I have taken with my wife. It's the sign that you all can see. So water baptism is the sign of repentance, so when we come to faith in Jesus, you know, for the, for the early church, it would have been unthinkable that someone would come to faith in Christ and not very soon be baptized in water. And my encouragement to you is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ and you've not yet been baptized, we'd love to talk to you about that. It's an outward expression of an inward change. But John, in, in verse 11, speaks of a limitation in his ministry. He says, look, I'm preaching Repentance to you, and you're responding, and you are being baptized in water. But there is one coming who is far greater than I, and he is also going to baptize, but it's going to be a different baptism. The baptism is with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the book of Acts refers to what John is talking about in this passage most commonly as being filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's the language that we Uh, probably are most comfortable and familiar with here at Crestmont. But Scripture uses different terms to describe the same thing. This experience of being immersed in, covered in, filled in with the Holy Spirit and with power. So John is saying, you're going to come to repentance, but there's also going to be this experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, especially in the book of Acts, we see these two baptisms at play, again and again and again. So in Acts chapter 2, we can assume that Jesus' disciples have already been baptized, likely through the ministry of John the Baptist. They're clearly already identifying as followers of Jesus, but Jesus tells them to wait in this upper room of prayer until they receive something different, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, people's stories are different, and Acts kind of references the messiness of this so in Acts chapter 10 if you remember that story Cornelius this Roman citizen and his household they come to faith in Jesus and before Peter even has a chance to get them into water to baptize them they are filled with the Holy Spirit in much the same way that the disciples were in Acts chapter 2 they begin to speak in languages that they did not know In Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 19, we see something different happen. Acts chapter 8 deals with the Samaritans and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 19 deals with the Ephesian believers being filled with the Holy Spirit. The stories are similar. These are two groups of believers who have believed in Jesus, count themselves as disciples of Jesus, but no one has explained to them yet the filling of the Holy Spirit. And after they explain, it gets explained to them, someone explains it to them, they, they say, I want that. And people lay hands on them, and they also are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be asking, but don't you get the Holy Spirit the moment you're saved? Yes, yes. That is also the clear teaching of Scripture. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he links the ministry of the Holy Spirit actually to our water baptism. You know, that when we are coming into the family of God, it's by the Spirit, right, that we come into the family of God. So the Spirit is at work in all of this. And yet, Paul himself tells the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 5 that they should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking to believers, not unbelievers. He's talking to people who already have the Holy Spirit. But he's commanding them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So yes, we get the Spirit at salvation. And filling, being filled with the Spirit of God, is not so much about how much of the Spirit we have. Listen, you either have all of the Spirit or you have none of them. He's a person, right? Right? He can't be divided up. So it's not about how much of the Spirit we have, but how much of us the Spirit has, right? It's in yielding ourselves to Him. It's in saying, Lord, fill me, surround me. I want my life to be surrounded by the will and power of God, filled by the love and power of God. And one thing we see in the book of Acts is that filling, being filled with the Spirit of God, is not a one-time experience, but that this is a marker in the Christian life that we go from being filled to being filled to being filled. And there is no such thing in the New Testament as being filled with the Holy Spirit without there being evidence of having been filled. There is always evidence. This isn't some just completely invisible reality. Now, our best understanding of Scripture is that there are different kinds of evidence is in the book of Acts. So sometimes people receive extraordinary abilities, extraordinary gifts. Sometimes they receive boldness to be able to preach the word of God fearlessly. Sometimes they are filled so that they can suffer. Can you believe that? That that is evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. But there's always evidence. If we were to sum up, okay, what is the evidence of having been filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, here it is, love. Let me tell you something. Someone comes to me and they say, oh, I'm filled with the Holy Ghost and with power. And they're speaking in other languages or something and they do not love somebody. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Because in the end, it's not your extraordinary abilities in the spirit that are the evidence. It is your love for one another and for God that seals us in the Holy Spirit. But we're never surprised when that evidences in miraculous ways. So, John says, there's a baptism in water, but the one who is coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then we see in Matthew 3 that what John said would happen, what would belong to all of us, happens to Jesus himself. So, Jesus comes to John. John, you know, is having trouble understanding this moment, but Jesus says it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And so, John baptizes him, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Two distinct things, but they happen right next to each other. Now, this morning, this is what I want to talk about in our few minutes together. There are many evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Power, boldness, gifts, miracles, all kinds of things. But what I want you to know this morning, church, is that a function of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, of Him possessing your very being, is that he makes you secure in the love of the Father. Hear me? This is a big deal. I love gifts. I love all that stuff is great. But an evidence of being filled is that you become secure in the Father's love. At the moment that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, he received four things from his Father. And listen, in the kingdom of God, what Jesus gets, we get. Right? What Jesus gets, we get. Jesus shares the inheritance with us. And so these are the four things he gets. First of all, validation. So that Jesus didn't have to prove himself to people. He said, a voice said from heaven. This voice that's speaking from heaven, this is happening publicly. Other people are seeing it. And they're hearing it. They're observing what it is that's happening. And this is the father's stamp of approval on his son to validate him in the eyes of other people. Now think about how important this is for Jesus because he's about to go into a ministry where his own family isn't going to believe him, where his disciples are going to doubt him, where people are going to say all kinds of horrible things about him, eventually calling him a blasphemer and it costing him his very life. So don't you think it's important That before he heads into this ministry that his father is giving him, that he receives validation from his father. Secondly, he receives identity. This is my son. You know, if we don't get our identity from a credible source, we will get our identity from other things. What people say about us. The environment that we're in. The successes or failures that we feel like we have. But here, the father settles Jesus' identity. This is my son. My son, the father says. He belongs to me. And this is Jesus' identity moving forward. Uh, Chelsea and I were out of town this last week, and we got to catch up with some friends. And they were talking about how their oldest daughter was coming home uh, with an attitude they didn't like, that she was absorbing from the people around her like a preteen daughter, and she was coming home with this, and I loved what my friend said. He said, I'm trying to teach her what a Williams is and what a Williams isn't. I'm trying to say, hey, that attitude that you're evidencing right now, it's not very Williams-ish, Williams-esque, (laughs) Williams-like, right? It's not very Williams. It's not how we act. See, That's so good as a father because that's a father not just fighting for the behavior of his daughter. That's a father fighting for the identity of his daughter. And the two are related but not the same thing. Fighting for the identity of his daughter. So here Jesus receives his identity. Next, acceptance. This is my son in whom I I love. So Jesus didn't have to make a place for himself. You, know, you have to wonder: Does my life have a purpose? Or, you know, do I fit into the scheme of history? You now he's accepted by his father right at the outset. And lastly, approval. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So validation has to do with proving ourselves to people. Approval has to do with proving ourselves to God. And Jesus had to do neither because as we have said before from this platform as we've been in the Gospels, from the point of Jesus' baptism forward, he does his ministry not for the Father's approval but from the Father's approval. He has the Father's approval immediately. He has it right at the beginning. It belongs to him. Validation, identity, acceptance, and approval right here in the filling of the Spirit. Now, I find this significant because look at chapter 4, verse 1. After Jesus receives these things, validation, you can go back, Letha. After after receiving these things, validation, identity, acceptance, and approval, you'll notice that what does he do? He goes on to his first ministry assignment, which is what? To go into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So this is the reality of Jesus' life. This is the first of many hard assignments that are ahead of him, right? To be tempted by the devil when you're hungry and thirsty and alone is the first of many hard assignments that are coming. To keep speaking truth when people don't wanna hear it. To keep healing and delivering when people are saying, that's not the Holy Spirit doing it, that's demons. That happened to Jesus. To be misunderstood in front of the Sanhedrin, to be abandoned in the hours before his death, to hang on a cross for us Let me ask you, friends, how do you do that if you don't know that you are validated, that you have an identity in the Father's love, that you are accepted by your Father, and that you have the approval of your Father at the beginning? See, if you don't have that, you won't do anything else. Jesus would have left the mission. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus received these things. By the Spirit. Now, why is it that the filling of the Holy Spirit forged these things into the ministry of Jesus? Well, it's because one thing that the Holy Spirit does, I love him for it. One thing that the Holy Spirit does is he brings to us the love of the Father. See, until we get filled with the Holy Spirit and power, the love of the Father is a concept, but it's not a reality. The love of the Father is something we theorize about. It's not something we live out of powerfully. But the Holy Spirit brings to us the very love of God, puts it deep into our physical body, into our souls, into everything that we are, so that we begin to live out of his love instead of other things. So this is what Jesus did. He's living out of his identity, validation, acceptance, All of these things. Now, if Jesus, in his humanity, is 100% God, 100% man, but if in his humanity, he needed the validation, identity, acceptance, and approval of his father, then I just want to suggest to you this morning that we do too, right? Listen, I really believe, church, that most of us in this room probably really want to serve God. I believe that. You know, speaking of this passage, I really bet that most of us in this room, that what we really want, deep down inside, in our, in our spirits that have been made alive in Christ, what we want deep down inside is to be like Jesus in Matthew 4:1, to be able to go into the wilderness and kick some devil butt, right? I think that's what we want. I think in their deepest place of our hearts. We want to live that kind of lives, and yet so many of us never get there. Instead of serving, we end up actually doing the opposite. We end up sinning. Our desires are good, but we end up failing all the time. You know, sometimes getting out of the house in the morning is so stressful, seriously. And some of it is because I'm so forgetful. There have been mornings, I'm ashamed to admit, I've had to drive back to my house two or three times because I forgot something, you know? And every time I'm going in and I'm getting angrier and angrier, like this is anybody's fault except for mine, right? Oh, I forgot my wallet. I forgot this book on you. I forgot, you know, those mornings are terrible because we just want to get on with our day. Well, listen, that's what happens in our spiritual lives when we find ourselves spinning our wheels again and again and again, and we find ourselves in this place thinking that the problem is just us. Well, the problem is us, but there is a Spirit who wants to empower His people to get us out the door on mission, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does, is He brings this to us. So we end up sinning instead of serving. Now listen, we're right up on the hour. I'm going to wrap up in like 10 minutes. But listen... Seriously, let me me just give you like two examples. I could give many more, but two examples of how our sin, which we often think is just a behavior issue, actually has its root in us never feeling like we were validated or having received our identity from the Father or knowing the acceptance and the approval of God. The longer I'm in pastoral ministry, people come to me and confess stuff to me. I'm so glad that they do. But I, I often find that people think that they just did the wrong thing, and that's the end of the story. Like, it's just like a surface thing. Well, I knew what was right, and I just did the wrong thing, right? But in fact, it goes so much deeper than that, because if the Father gives us these things by the filling of the Spirit, then it's a holy desire to long for these things. It's a holy desire to want them. It's just, we, this is why Christianity that is just about killing desire in people puts people in such a bad place. What a bunch of garbage to just kill desire and longing in people. God made us to desire. God made us to long. The problem is we so often long and desire in the wrong places. Okay, so two examples. Sexual sin, first of all. I, I don't think I have ever had someone confess to me something in that area where I have not seen in time that these are the issues underlying it. The attempt in this cycle of shame is either to actually find these things in false notions of love, or it is to ease the pain, to numb the pain of not having these things through sexual sin. But so often it is rooted right here. Or take this one, you know, a much more churchy sin that that we've all been we've all been we've all been guilty of. Gossip. I've asked myself in recent weeks, why is it that people gossip? See, I don't want to just stand in front of you or groups of other people and just say, stop that. Stop gossiping, you know? stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> you know? Because that's, a, you know what, if, if those are the messages we preach at Crossmont, you know what will happen? We will all learn to hide really good. That's what we'll do. We'll learn to hide really good and act like no one is engaging in this stuff when in fact we are. We just learn to hide better. You know, that's sinful nature. So I want to get to the why. So I've been asking this question, asking people in my life, why is it that This happens, I'm sorry, Diane, did I offend you? Oh, okay, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> love you very much, okay, um, so, so listen, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so I've wanted, I've wanted to ask the question, like what is at the root of this? You know, why is it that people begin to criticize the way other people raise their children? Why is it that they begin to criticize the way they dress? Or the place that they take vacations? You know, why is it that people talk about the school choices that other families have made? Or who was invited to whose house for which event? Why is it? Now, just a warning before I get to the heart stuff. Just a warning. It is generally my experience, and you don't have to do this at all, but people change the way they talk around pastors. Doesn't have to. Don't do that, all right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to, or I should say this, I'll qualify it, religious people change the way they talk around pastors. And you know, you don't have to do that, but just, just a warning, um, and I mean this from a place of love, that I often find that the people who talk about other people, although they want to do their best to keep it quiet, it does reach the ears of everyone, including your church leaders. More than you know, you may have a reputation. That's the warning and the consequence of sin. But here is where this comes into play. See, I think that really gossip has its root in these issues, validation, identity, acceptance, and approval. See, when I feel like I can shepherd information, that it's my role to take care of this information and make sure it gets to the right people that I choose, it increases my sense of self-importance. What I'm looking for is validation. See, when in my language I put other people down to make myself look better, so often what I'm doing is looking for identity or acceptance. Or this, when I am right in my discernment about somebody else's weakness and I share it with another person without ever having the intention of dealing directly with the brother or sister that we are talking about, without ever having that intention because I'm too afraid or whatever, The fear is a sign that my identity, acceptance, and approval are not in the love of the Father. Now, do you see how good this is for our holiness church? Because do you see, God doesn't just want to fill you with fire so that you can be on mission for the world so that he can use you. He wants to fill you with fire to first deal with all of those insecurities. Do you hear me? Sister, brother, he's not just telling you to stop it. He's saying, let me fill those holes in your life. Let me fill those insecurities. Let me give you an identity. Let me tell you that you are accepted and that I approve you because Jesus died on the cross. That's your approval. That's your identity. That's your acceptance. And I have found, for me at least, and I'm not perfect at all. I need more and more filling. But I found that the more I get filled with the Holy Spirit, the less I engage and talking in ways that hurt other people. So, what do we do? If the worship team could come forward, or a couple of musicians. What do we do? Well, here's what we do. We seek in the right place. Everyone say that. Seek in the right place. Now listen, humans are natural seekers. Do you know this? Like we're born seeking. Like my daughter Isla is just over two weeks old and she knows how to seek for food, right? She came out that way. Kids, kids are some of the best seekers. Yesterday, my son came to me. We had just gotten back from general counsel and he came to me and he said, hey, can I play video games today? What well, it was a nice day. I knew there were friends around. We were outside working and I just decided it wasn't a day for that. So I said, no, we're not gonna play video games today. He said, I'm bored. I would say, it's good for you. (laughs) That's my answer. And I was like, hey, because sometimes some of their best stuff comes out of that, right? And so I said, we're not going to play video games today. Do you know what he did? And I was so annoyed, and I'm thinking to myself, this is what I love about kids, you know, all at the same time. He comes to me like five minutes later, hey, I was thinking, he starts his sentences with, well, like he's reasoning with me. Well, I was wondering, do you think that we could play video games for just half an hour? I was like, I said, son, I gave you an answer, right? An hour goes by, he comes back. Hey, how are you feeling now about (laughs) video games? I said, and I'm getting increasingly irritated each time. I said, we already talked about this. I gave you an answer. So he came back a fourth time. He's going to be like such an incredible intercessor, Steve, you know? He comes at me a fourth time and he says to me, he says to me, Hey, could we leave this decision? Could we leave this decision up to mom? Do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I said, no. So listen, I dealt with that. I mean, I had to talk to him about it, but I love that he knows how to seek intuitively. As a matter of fact, if you have stopped seeking and longing and desiring as a human being, it means one of two things has happened. First of all, you are in a state of despair. We talked a lot about hope in the last few weeks. And when we start despairing, we also stop seeking and longing. And it's the role of the Holy Spirit in that time to begin to minister hope to us, even in the worst places of our despair. And I just wanna encourage you this morning, if you are too despairing to hope, You just sit with Jesus where you are, and you will see that in time, hope will come. Hope will come. Might not clean everything up, but hope will come in the midst of that place. That's what I believe about Jesus. So either you're despairing, or you've stopped longing and desiring and seeking because um, you have become too religious. I meet these Christians that are like, I don't need anything. I'm good, I don't need anything. You know, God. Look, there's only one person. We like call that contentment, but it's not contentment. It's a perversion of contentment. Listen, there's only one person who doesn't need anything. You know who it is? God. God is the only one who doesn't need anything. All of us in this room, we need a whole lot of stuff. As a matter of fact, I'm scared of the person who thinks they don't need anything. You think you're the whole package? You think you're God? Listen, I'd rather have someone who knows in the deepest part of them that they need, that they need. So this is exactly what Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1:4. Before he ascended to the Father, he said to them, go to Jerusalem and what? Wait. Go and wait. See, we know how to seek, church. If I can just say this as we close. I, we know how to seek things. We seek validation, identity, acceptance and approval all the time and we do it intuitively. We know how to say we know how to say what needs to be said. We we know how to position ourselves in the right environments to get these things. You know, until the Father fills that, we're constantly seeking after these things. It's not that we don't know how to seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's just that we often seek filling in other places instead of from the Holy Spirit. That's the issue. And so, we know how to seek. Listen, it can take a long time. I want you to know that. God's not some vending machine that you just pop in a coin and you get out what you want, like boom, filling. God may take you through a lot of pain before you get filled. He might take you through some desert before you get filled. He might bring you to the brink where you wonder if this whole thing is for real before you get filled as a matter of fact as I see desperation start to rise in people the closer I realize they actually are then they know you know it's my job to help carry them through that (laughs) you know to the place because filling is right around the corner all right so we're over but today is a day to seek Steve is going to come forward and we're going to mobilize for some prayer you're going to have the opportunity to go if you need to go but we're also going to mobilize for prayer because it may be that God is asking you to seek just one more time, to seek in the right place and let other people seek with you. Let's do this together. Let's stand together until we see Pentecost number two and three and four and five and six in our lives. I want want my life to go from Pentecost to Pentecost. Amen, church? That's what I want, from power to power, from glory to glory, from grace to grace.